Get shook by the Schaefer Shakedown. Hello, my shakers out there. How are you guys doing today? This is the ninth episode of the Schaefer Shakedown. I am your host, Sarah Schaefer. Welcome. I hope you are having a very smooth third week of September. Um, let's get some business out of the way right up top. Let's not waste one second of our precious lives. Um, tonight is the next episode or next installment of my uh, uh, comedy in miniature show, <laughs> The Ha Ha Hole, going live tonight, 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, Thursday, September 23rd. If you haven't gotten tickets yet, Get them now. Don't wait till the last second just to avoid any um, glitches getting into the Zoom on time. Um, we have an amazing lineup. Three of my favorite comedians, and I am not exaggerating when I say that, Naomi Ekparagan, Deborah DiGiovanni, and Daniel Perez. They are all so funny. Um, if you haven't heard of them, you're going to love them after seeing them, hopefully in this setting. But you should check out their regular sized uh, comedy as well. Um, still working on the doll versions. I have so much to do to get ready. Um, I even made a wheelchair. This, that was the big project on this, this installment was making a wheelchair for Danielle. She does use one and I, I can't believe I did it. It turned out so good. If you haven't seen um, the video I posted of me making it, please go to my Instagram and check that out. So anyway, get tickets. What else? Uh, I captured a black widow inside my compost bin because tis the season, baby. Halloween is upon us. <laughs> Poisonous spiders are abound. Um, yeah, uh, I opened up the compost bin lid and sure enough, there it was. And you know when you see something that you've been warned your entire life to not be near and you see it and you just know that's what it is. You're like, holy shit, it's happening. It's really happening. There's a black widow face to face with me right now and I don't have gloves on. Fuck. Um, yeah, it, it, and I've seen, I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen a real black widow in person. Okay. Um, I think I've seen the species that mimics them. There's a species that looks like a black widow and has a red mark on its back, but black widows have a hourglass on their bellies. And then there are brown widows who look just like black widows, but they are, um, they're not black, black. They have like a lot of brown and gray coloring on them and they are not dangerous, but black widows are, I mean, black widow bite is probably not going to kill you an adult human, but apparently they're very painful and you can feel kind of sick after and um, they can be dangerous to little kids or dogs or whatever. Um, you don't want to get bit is what I'm saying. And so I I remained calm. I went immediately got gloves on and I thought about it. I was like, look, I don't want to spray a bunch of raid or like chemicals into my compost bin. I want that to be an or a natural place. And I, I feel bad because spiders are actually great. I don't like to kill spiders. I usually will even let them, even though I'm kind of scared of them. I, 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 if they're not bothering me, I don't bother them. Um, but a black widow, you know, with a kid on the property and a dog on the property, I don't want them laying eggs. I don't want it around. So I got to get rid of it. Well, how do I do that in a natural way? Um, so yeah, I thought quick on my feet and I went and I got a little, I save all these, uh, I save any containers I use for yogurt um, Parmesan cheese, like those types of containers, I save those 
because, um, as I've mentioned in the past, I am an old woman at heart. Um, but I save those because I use them for crafting and paint and all kinds of stuff. But I was like, oh, I could just like, because it was sort of hovering in the compost bin above everything. I was like, I can just lift up the cup of that and then put the lid over and capture it really easily. Um, it worked. Uh, I also captured the brown widow because at first I couldn't really tell and I just captured it anyway, just in case. And uh, left those containers out on the um, table for a full day, which I feel is a little bit cruel. Um, just didn't want to think about it, you know, put it out of sight, out of mind. And uh, Jordan had to, uh, she she wanted to kill it. She was like, let me just smash it with this flip-flop. And I'm like, is that really the plan? I had like a whole elaborate thing. I'm going to poke holes in the container and then spray Raid through the hole and then it will die. I mean, I was thinking of like really fucked up, uh, like, you know, cruel ways of killing this spider. And she was like, let me just smash it. Well, of course, Jordan comes up. She doesn't have gloves on. She's got, she's doing the two things you're not supposed to do when you're around a black widow. She's got no gloves on and she has open toed shoes on. She's like, let me just do it. I'm like, Jordan, Jordan. That thing, she let it out and I immediately screamed. She got it, um, though very quickly before it could run anywhere near her. I can't believe she did that like that. But anyway, it is dead. Um, I am sorry to the Black Widow. I honor you, but, um, I, I, I'm sorry, but you had to go. Um, and, uh, so anyway, I have felt like I'm covered in spiders, uh, for the past 24 hours to three days (laughs) because of it. Also, I got the results of my soil test back for the garden. Um, very difficult to understand. I feel like an anti-vaxxer doing my own research, if you know what I mean. I'm just looking at facts and figures I have no experience in and drawing conclusions. Um, ah, I see the NO2N is very low, so we'll need to tweak the CEC. Like, I truly was so confused. So I had to uh, Google and watch some videos and stuff. I was at least able to glean from the results that my soil definitely lacks nitrogen. And that's actually kind of a relief because that is something I know how to fix, I think. I think, you know, my plan was already to layer a lot of compost partially. It's called lasagna gardening. There's different ways of doing it, but you can layer uh, browns and greens and partially composted materials. And it start over time, that starts to break down and really, um, really do good things for your soil. I can also add some things to the soil. I'm planning on, as we head into the winter, planting some winter hardy, at least for L.A., plants that are known as nitrogen fixers. So beans, peas, things that add nitrogen to the soil. And then I can even, when I harvest the beans, I can even, basically what you do, because I'm trying no dig, no till gardening, where you don't till or disturb your soil. Um, And I am going to actually try and do that and then maybe it's called um green manure (laughs) it's i've learned a lot about manure manure is not what we think it is um (laughs) anyway uh you cut down those plants while they're still green and still living um and you let them decay into the soil and that further adds nitrogen and cycles the carbon and all that stuff so okay what else what else uh Oh, right. Since my last episode, um, I have tried to cancel two male comedians. I, you know, 
I was just feeling jealous of their careers, so I decided to try and take theirs away from them, you know, because that's how it works, right? Like, if you cancel someone, I don't know if you knew this, but if you cancel someone, you get their career. It's basically a one-to-one exchange. Um, And how do you cancel someone? But basically, you just say something bad about them. Pure cancellation, boom, you've got their career. They are ruined. You are lifted up. It's easy. It's a business strategy that I highly recommend. There's no way it backfires ever. Um, obviously, I'm kidding. Good God. What I did, I, did I, I didn't try to cancel anyone, but I did publicly comment on two male comedians that um, I, I added my thoughts to an ongoing conversation about two different male comedians, two different situations, but it both happened in the past few weeks. Uh, these men... Um, the stories were going around about how they had done things um, problematic uh, towards women. And um, one of them actually did some shit to me. So I actually had a story about this guy. So I saw stories about him going around and I decided that I wanted to help validate their experience and to have those women's back backs. And I've never done this before, but I did name, I did, add to to my um I added to the threat I said me too not hashtag me too but I was like yep and this and this and that was one and then the other one um was it this person I've never met him before but um I just sort of acknowledged the complex legacy of a certain male comedian that recently died obviously I'm talking about Norm Macdonald look I'm not going to get into that stuff I don't really want (laughs) to You're going to understand why I just don't even feel like getting into this shit. But you can go look at my Twitter if you want to see what I said. You know, I, I let me just say, okay, in my various obvious attempts to completely ruin these men, um, you know, there's no other reason to bring up a negative thing about a person. You know, the reason that you bring up negativity about a person is because you are trying to cancel them and ruin their life and or legacy and thereby get your own career. Obviously, there's no other reason. (laughs) And because we know the only people who ever say anything negative about their peers are the ones who aren't as successful and they only do it out of jealousy. You're just jealous. (sighs) Those are all the things that people say whenever you bring up this stuff. Well, it turns out I was not successful. My career is not blown up since mentioning something in a reply on Twitter. Uh, I did not cancel anyone. It literally did nothing. The Both of these instances had a zero impact. <laughs> Honestly, if anything happened, it resulted in the further harassment of women. <laughs> Some of the comments I got were pretty shitty. Um, others got worse, way worse than me. And maybe even negative career consequences that we don't even know about behind closed doors. Nothing happened to the men, okay? You're screaming into a fucking void. I don't know if hashtag me too is just cliche now. The trend is over. We're bored and we've moved on to other shit. Um, I don't know, but it's depressing as fuck. And to be clear, I, I didn't set out by chiming in on these things. I certainly did not set out, even though I joked about it just a second ago, I did not set out to ruin anyone's career. 
I wanted to acknowledge other women. That was the fundamental. I wanted to acknowledge the truth and stories um, coming out. And I and it, as someone who openly fights for women in my business, I just felt responsible to do that um, and be there for them. But fundamentally, what do I want? What do I? What result do I want? I want change. Wow. Imagine that. I want accountability. And the more I think about it, the more I think that we'll never get that change and accountability if men in my business don't stop tolerating this behavior from their peers. It's whatever I've landed after all these years of Me Too stuff. If the men don't get involved, nothing is going to change. So to men, I say, if you think you're one of the good guys and you haven't bothered any women in your career and you treat us with respect, that's not enough. If you don't want you or your buddies to be called out for bad shit or your legacies to be complicated after you die, then don't do the bad shit to begin with. Don't tolerate it. Do not allow it for one second. And if you did do bad shit and maybe, oh, because it was a different time. That's what we did back then. We didn't know women were people. <laughs> okay. Maybe, let's say that's a legitimate excuse and that you've changed. You're different now. Um, it, make that known. Make sure we know that you've changed. You've earnestly, legitimate, legitimately changed, made amends. Really do it. Don't. Don't do damage control out of fear because we women know I've had, uh, I don't even want to fucking get into it. I had one person apologize to me for something he did to me and he did it in a way that was not satisfactory. I'll just say that it didn't work. <laughs> anyway, treat women like they're human beings, like they're your equal and stop making it the women's responsibility to clean up the mess you made. Whenever comedians share stories about sexual harassment or assault, there's always some asshorn who shows up saying, like, why didn't you report it? This is not the proper channel for such accusations. It's like, report it to who exactly? There's no comedy human resources. You can't call them up and they're like, Hello, thank you for calling comedy human resources. This call may be recorded for quality assurance purposes. If you are calling to report a safety issue, press 1. If you are calling about discrimination in the workplace, press 2. If you are a comedian calling to report sexual harassment by one of your peers, press 3. If you are a male comic who has been publicly criticized, please hang up and dial 911. If you are calling about health benefits, pension plan, workers' comp, behavioral health coverage, or maternity leave, please hang up. To speak to a representative, please stay on the line. I'm sorry, but all of our representatives are busy assisting other customers. We appreciate your patience and we'll be with you shortly. Did you know that you can manage your career on our website? Make changes to your brand, ask your fans for payments, or report a fellow comedian for sexual harassment all with the click of a button. Go to www.twitter.com. That's www.twitter.com. Are you still there? All of our agents are busy assisting other customers. The current wait time is 27 years. In the mood for a pick-me-up? Head on over to our website where you can find information about how one of your abusers is thriving. 
And don't forget to check out our rewards program, Comedy Bucks. Every time you remain silent about harassment and or bigotry in your industry, you'll receive one Comedy Buck. Use Comedy Bucks to access stage time, festivals, podcasts, meetings, and more. To sign up, simply say and do nothing. Are you still there? We're sorry, but due to the upcoming release of a new Dave Chappelle special, all of our representatives are busy preparing for the second coming of Christ. Please call back during our regular business hours, Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Pacific to 7 a.m. Eastern. Goodbye. I'll admit that was that was a little on the bleak side. Uh, but that's how I feel right now. And just wondering what can we fucking do to make women equal across the board in society? <laughs> It's a big question. Um, but it also the Norm McDonald stuff brought up, you know, uh, thoughts for me about how do we publicly, collectively grieve, um, whether it be the death of a famous person, because also not only did that weekend Norm died, but it was also the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And all of it just got swirly in my head and I started thinking, and I know it's a bit late for this. You're probably really not in the mood to hear yet another discussion of 9-11. I mean, I, I apologize if this feels like I'm asking you to uh, get the Christmas decorations back out right when you finally put them away in the attic. Um, but the 20-year anniversary, it has sent me deep into the woods of self-reflection. And I've been lingering there for a while now. You know, I usually uh, plan out a little better what I'm going to say on this podcast than I have today. So please bear with me um, if this gets kind of rambly and disorganized. But let's just hold hands and walk together through the forest, shall we? I'll start by saying that 9-11 obviously was an inside job. I'm just kidding. What if what if you found out today that I am a truther? <laughs> um, no. Um, 9-11 obviously changed the world for all of us. Um, I mean, it traumatized everyone who lived through it. And in some way, shape, or form. You can't be an American and not have it imprinted on you in some way. But also for me, 9-11, it has a couple uh, added significances for me, which um, it's a it's a marker in my life of like before and after, like uh, almost like I almost would say childhood to adulthood in a way, because um, I was 23 years old on 9-11. And on that day, I was in New Orleans uh, that morning. I was getting up and going to work. But at that time living there, I was packing to move to New York City. I had made the decision. I had already put my notice in and I was leaving within days to go move to New York city. And so it, um, uh, it was crazy. You know, I, I don't need to tell my nine 11 story. I mean, I was, you know, like many other people, someone called and said, turn on the TV and I turned it on and saw it and said the same emotions that so many people felt, which is like the first plane, like what, how that's in a, some kind of computer glitch. It was an accident. And then the second one, I, I mean, all this information coming at you and then all of the the sequence of the day, we all know it so well at this point. Um, but I did move to New York. I waited a month, but I still went against the 
fear or, you know, in defiance of the fears of many people who knew me, including my parents, they were just like, you're really still going to move to New York at this time in your, at this time in American history, you're going to go there. And I, my thought was, well, they already got New York, so maybe it's safer there. <laughs> it was still so terrifying. It's, it would be scary to move to New York for anyone if you've never lived in a city like that. I mean, there's almost no city like it. I mean, it's so overwhelming. The, the, just the height of the buildings, the, the subway, the speed of it, the, the mixing of all the cultures. Like, I just had never experienced any of that before. It was so terrifying. And I was going to pursue a career in comedy, which was terrifying in and of itself. So, you know, that would have been a true entry into adult hood even without my innocence being violently ripped away from me um by a terrorist attack so in a you know the 20th anniversary was a lot to think about also just because it marks the uh, the moment of me moving to new york the 20th anniversary of me starting on this path to become a comedian you know it's been 20 years i don't know if i count 2001 as my year that I started comedy like I didn't perform comedy in New York for a while after first moving there but yeah I mean I started comedy 20 years ago I took my first step was taking improv level one one at UCB so yeah I've been doing comedy for 20 years that is that's a lot to think about um but then on top of all of that on all these heightening factors, I also, I did lose a friend in the North Tower. And I think knowing Alicia put me in the middle of, of two experiences of 9-11. I, I, on one hand, I experienced it like most Americans watching it on TV from very far away. But on the other, I quickly learned that someone I knew was inside those buildings. And from then on, I would not be able to see an image of 9-11, a video of the planes, of the smoke, of any of it, without imagining her violent death, her terror. Um, it made it so real to me. She, um, she and I went, knew each other in high school. We went to this same like church group thing that we did, like a church extracurricular thing we did. And our families became friends and she and I were in the same like cabin together when we first went on this church retreat thing. And that's when I first met her and we were friends. And then she also went to the same college as me, William and Mary. And so she wasn't a super close friend of mine by the time 9-11 happened. Um, and even in college, but like she gave me a ride one time um, home from William and Mary back to Richmond you know, I mean, we just, our, her mom and my mom were friends. Um, so I didn't lose a best friend. I didn't lose a close person, but I lost someone that I knew that it was a really wonderful person. Um, she was so much. I mean, she, she, my, the first time I met her, I thought she was so cool. That was my first thought. She's so pretty. She has like really long eyelashes <laughs> naturally. And she had this gorgeous smile and she was an artist. Like we got these t-shirts um, on the church retreat. It was called Chrysalis. 
and it had this design on it and she had done the design. I thought that was so cool. I was like, you designed a t-shirt? What? <laughs> and she was really good at drawing and she would do these colorful drawings and they were like um, really cool. And, and I just remember thinking her and her whole family were so cool. And, uh, and then when in, in college, um, something really unusual happened, um, with Alicia in that she got pregnant and not, uh, and nobody I knew at William and Mary got pregnant during college. And if they did, they, they didn't keep the baby. Um, she got pregnant and had the baby during college and still, and stayed with the guy and they both graduated on time, got married and moved to New York together. Um, right after college. She was an accountant at Cantor Fitzgerald and he worked in finance somewhere right around there. And, um, so they, she had a small daughter, two years old, um, when she died and, uh, she had done so much living. She was so young and she had already experienced things that I'll never experience. I mean, you know, she had already been married, which obviously I have experienced, but having a kid and, and, you know, um, it was just so tragic and awful that she died. Like they all were. Um, it just brought reality to the experience and it made, it, it was very easy to get lost in trying to imagine what it was like for her in those horrible final moments. I mean, just awful. And, um, you know, I moved to New York a month later, like I said. It was like, I remember it being Halloween time. And in those first few weeks living there, those first few months, I would ride the subway and just imagine everything that could go wrong. Other moments that stick out when I first moved there, um, I had to run an errand to a bank for some reason. I don't know if it was like to get a money order or something for the apartment or work. I, I don't know. I had to go to a bank and I looked it up. This is pre smartphones so like I had I didn't even have a cell phone so I had no like GPS to help guide me and so I wrote down the the directions to get to this bank downtown I didn't know anything about where I was going I come out and I'm all turned around and I walk around a corner and I am standing a block away from ground zero and that I that very memorable look that we all remember of the carnage of that wreckage of this the the framing of the windows the outside part of the you know it was like a grid that's what it looked like of metal and then it was gnarled and like sticking up out of ground zero that just that wreckage like you can probably imagine it right now I was standing in front of it and there was smoke still coming off of it. And I, I, I mean, I went like, <gasps> like I, I wasn't ready for it. I turned around and closed my, I walked away as fast as I could. And then I thought, oh my God, Alicia's in there. I, I just, it was so horrifying. And then I thought, God, imagine being here, standing here and be, you know, experiencing that firsthand. You know, I felt, just like an interloper in somebody else's trauma in a way. Um, if that makes sense, like I didn't belong there and I wasn't, I shouldn't have showed up, you know, that wasn't my business. Um, 
in not just in that moment near ground zero, but like in New York, I had this feeling of like, uh, is it okay for a new person to come here right now? I know you guys just went through some shit, but I want to do comedy. <laughs> it was really weird. Um, so just it's weighed on my mind. Um, and one of the things that been that's really been rattling around in there in this little head of mine is about the concept of grief, the experience of grief, collective grief, personal grief, public versus private displays of grief. And how I mean there's so much to unpack here but you know how people entities used our grief against us in the wake of 9-11. They used it to do very, very evil things. Um, you know, us pulling out of Afghanistan adds to this, these thoughts. Um, all that happened in the name of our loss and our trauma as a society, it's crazy to think about looking back now, 20 years later. Um, I never felt the patriotism that other people felt after 9-11. I was immediately suspicious of, of it. Um, and I want to say, everything I'm going to say sounds like, wow, you really were thinking clearly. You know, it's like looking back, I am looking back. I could, I could never have verbalized it then the way I am now, is what I'm saying. Um, but I was suspicious of it, for sure. And before 9-11, I had already been telling people that I felt like something bad was coming, that something bad was going to happen to the United States of America. I, my, my little sis, Ross, I remember after 9-11 called me and was like, are you, like, under a table hiding? Because you said this was coming. And, like, she, she remembered it, um, me saying that. And I was like... Uh, I mean, it wasn't that I had some kind of intuition or prophetic vision. It just, I just felt before 9-11, I had for a couple years, I had felt that America had really fucked around enough that we were on the verge of, of quote unquote, finding out. You know what I'm saying? Um, I was raised in the South and was definitely taught that America was the greatest nation on earth. And that racism was over. Okay, so I was taught that we were always the good guys in every conflict we found ourselves in. Um, but by the age of 23, I was certain that that was not the, the, the complete truth, if it was true at all. Um, I, again, at the time, I would not have been able to verbalize to you why I felt that way exactly. Um, but I would just get this feeling like I knew enough, you know, I'd been to Honduras and, and the people there opened my eyes to like how America had meddled in Central America and that how they did not see us as heroes. Um, they treated us with suspicion. And I was, I learned a lot there and just, you know, in college and, and just learning, the more I learned and, and developed critical thinking skills, the more I became suspicious of American, you know, nationalism or exceptionalism or what are we, whatever the terms we use. Um, and I could just, I got this feeling. I had a fear. It was like the hair standing up on the back of my neck. Like we were living on borrowed time. Maybe it's because I took Latin 
for five years and learned a lot about Roman history. And I was really into it. And I was like, Rome fell. Even Rome fell. America will fall too, you know. <laughs> um, I was a little chicken little there. But um, speaking of chickens, I felt like the chickens were going to come home to roost at some point. And I couldn't imagine how or from what what direction. I certainly had no firm grasp at all on the politics of the Middle East. Um, it was just a feeling. And to be clear, I'm not trying to victim blame America. You know, I'm not... I'm not taking away the idea that on 9-11, bad people did something horrific to us, unforgivable to us, that it wasn't right. I'm not saying it was right, fair, or justified in any way. But what I realized after 9-11 is that so many people in this country, and still to this day, believe in a very childlike concept of America that is just not real. It's not complete. And that there is such a buildup to the events of 9-11 of why someone would want to do that to us. And, you know, I mean, we could go on all day about America's lack of accountability. The fucking Department of Defense, I was just listening on NPR uh, the other day, they've never successfully audited themselves like every other federal department has had to do. Um, You know, my sister Ross has gotten screwed out of federal dollars because they found loopholes to not give it to the shelter, you know. Um, They have to dot every I, cross every T to get just a dime to help the poorest of our nation. Meanwhile, the Pentagon doesn't know how many buildings it has. Like, they literally don't have a list that's complete or correct. They have no accountability. It's so disorganized. They are rampant with fraud. And it's on purpose. This is not an accident. This is because the people at the top want there to be... Dis, you know, disorganization so that they can continue to get away with lining their own pockets. That's why we were in a 20 year war. And it brings us back full circle of how I feel about 9-11, which is that in the aftermath, you know, immediately uh, my gut instinct, not to be like, I was right, but like I was, I was so upset that, that, that our government and that so many people were using the death of my friend And all of those other people killed, they were using that to go to war. And it just felt so wrong to me at the time. I mean, war has never felt right to me. I've never been someone who's like, well, there are reasons for war. I mean, honestly, I can't even get into it. But there are, I have very specific thoughts about, I am a pacifist. I don't believe in military conflict in a military solution. Uh, I don't believe in war in any way, shape or form. And I know some people bring up uh, Hitler and that's a kind of a sticking, sticky subject. I have thoughts on it. I'm not going to get into it here. Um, but war is hell. Um, it just felt so wrong to me. Violence wasn't going to solve anything. Killing more people would not bring Alicia back. I did feel like I was in the minority of like the people around me. Um, my boyfriend at the time, he wanted to join the military after 9-11. And it was shocking to me because he was the last person you would think would want to do that. I mean, he didn't join, but I just bring it up as an example of how people were feeling such strong emotions. And uh, they felt so angry and hurt They were much more willing to beat a war drum and we were so vulnerable. And honestly, it felt like we were giving the terrorists what they wanted. 
Why do you do that unless you want war? You're drawing us out. You awakened the beast with that move. And um, I just couldn't couldn't get on board with it. I was not going to beat that drum ever. But at the same time, I knew I could not speak for others and how they felt. Okay. Especially for the families of the dead. I could not know their pain. I could, I, I compare it to how I feel about like the death penalty. Like I, I'm against it. 99.99999% I'm against it. But I leave that 0.0001% open because I have never had someone close to me murdered, you know, uh, super close to me murdered in that way. And who's to say that I wouldn't feel differently about the death penalty if I did? That pain and you know, I just couldn't know. Now, I, I'd like to think that I would still be against the death penalty, but I just don't know. And I just can't, I don't feel like I can judge someone who has suffered that kind of an incredible loss for wanting the person who did it to them to die. Does that make sense? There are obviously a lot of other elements to the death penalty conversation, so I, I don't want to oversimplify it. But, but this piece of how people feel about it, how I feel about it, is what I'm talking about. Um, and those feelings are what swirled. And those feelings are what combined in, inside of me um, where I felt at the, after 9-11 and for many years and still to this day, I have felt like I don't have the right to comment on uh, certain things regarding 9-11 and, or even express my grief about 9-11. And um, I, I don't know the true horror of that day the way that the people who were there did, the people who lived in New York City and saw it with their own eyes. I, I don't know what it was like for the people who loved Alicia on that day, for her husband, Anthony, who was trying to get to her uh, and couldn't, um, for her mother and father and brothers, all people I knew, um, the horrible, indescribable terror of that, I will never know fully and I will never know what it was like for Alicia herself um, and so I immediately had this feeling of what right do I have to my own feelings on this and that was then but now all these 20 years later I've been working I'm, I'm looking back I'm discovering so much which is I've been working on myself uh, to allow myself my feelings. I am coming to realize that for my whole life, I have often denied myself my own feelings because I can easily point to someone who has it worse than me. You know, um, you shouldn't feel sad. Look how much worse that other person has. You shouldn't feel angry. Look how unjust it was for all those other people. And in some situations, I won't even stand up for myself because my brain will seek out some reason as to why my feelings don't matter. And that doesn't help anyone, really. There's a difference between being self-aware and knowing what's appropriate and having perspective and not being tone deaf and, like, denying yourself feelings you can't help but have. And so this is really, I don't know if any of this is making sense, but so cut to around 2009. 
when social media is now fully exploding with Facebook, okay? Facebook is here at this point, but now Twitter is in the mix. And now we have these massive virtual public public squares where we can all come together to shout our feelings at each other in a, in a high-level volume in a very fast way. And by this point, I had lost the person that I love the most in the world. I had, I had suffered a horrendous personal loss, um, obviously very different experience from 9-11, but my mom had died. So when Twitter got going, I had a really, uh, I had a more evolved understanding of and relationship with grief. So it's no wonder at the time I really hated the way people expressed collective grief, um, especially on Twitter. And it's easy to forget that when Twitter began for many years, Twitter was only, a, a tweet was only 140 characters, right? And you couldn't like link tweets. You couldn't do an epic thread yet. <laughs> um, everything was just very short and fleeting on Twitter. And there was this was also when Twitter, you know, maybe because of that, was also just truly for the mundane. Remember people always go, remember when Twitter was fun? That's what it was, like 2009. It was, it, Twitter was for saying shit like, chips are salty, I'm... I'm eating. It wasn't really a place for for complex emotional discussions. I mean, it still isn't truly not a place for complex emotional discussions still. But um, it was even more, it was even less so at the time. So at some point, I remember around that time when Twitter got going that I just really hated the way people collectively grieved, especially 9-11, because it went from like in-person conversations about how we felt about it to, you know, then your media coverage, tributes on the Today Show and things like that. Um, and it, then it went to hashtag never forget. And that just was so short and it was jarring. And then, you know, and then, of course, not just with 9-11. Also, when celebrities would die, you know, it became RIP hashtag their name. RIP. Even though I know RIP has been around forever, like. It's on old ass tombstones, <laughs> you know, it's not like R.I.P. was some new thing. Um, but on Twitter, when I saw it, I, you know, I remember like, I don't remember which celebrity it was that died, but it was like, you know, going crazy on Twitter, R.I.P. so and so. It struck me as vulgar. Um, and I don't know if that made me old, because this was around the time that people started were saying things like, kids these days, they just speak in abbreviations lol brb you know um so i'm not saying it was like that it just felt you know oh you can't even be bothered typing out the full phrase rest in peace you're in such a rush that your tribute to the dead is something like r.i.p brb lmao lilas tgif Um, that's how it felt to me. And so I was really annoyed by that. I also, um, and, and again, now I want to, the reason I'm talking about this is because my journey through this, my, my, my feelings about public grieving have changed so much. And during that time I was really like annoyed by it. I would stay off of Twitter on 9-11 and I was really annoyed. Like I always was like, if you didn't know the person, you shouldn't be tweeting about them. And I was very judgy. But 9-11 was its own thing. I mean, first off, you have the worst the worst offenders of 9-11 performative grieving, which was uh, people who wore those T-shirts with, like, airbrushed bald eagle over the Twin Towers. 
were people who made 9-11 their identity. Like 9-11 became, for some people, it became a symbol of nationalism, of white supremacy even. I mean, it really kind of started to go hand in hand with this certain type of person who now we would call like a MAGA hat person. You know, that's the same ilk. Those people are the worst of it. But some of it is way more subtle and insidious. And it, it still bothers me to this day, like not but not as much. But, you know, when people they they have a subtle romanticization of 9-11, they romanticize it a little when they're talking about it. I've seen it lately on uh, around the 20th anniversary. I saw some people being like, remember back when a, a tragedy brought us all together instead of. Now, with the pandemic, how it's dividing us, remember? And it's like, uh, huh? Like, remember? what? Who remembered? Wh- who was all together after 9-11? Who was all united? Like, maybe we were all united in fear and in grief of our own type, in trauma. You know, remember when we were all nice to each other? I'm sorry, do, ask a, a brown American, ask a Muslim American, ask a, an Indian American, ask a Sikh uh, member of the Sikh community, like ask those people how how kind people were to them back then. Ask them how it was. Did they feel united? Fuck no. Now, I, I want to say, you know, I went to New York so soon after 9-11 and not knowing how different the experience of New York I was getting than the normal New York. Um, and, you know, people were so raw and vulnerable and just like catatonic when I got there. Um, looking back, it was really weird. And people were kind. You know, they were willing to help me with my suitcase. I took the Amtrak up to New York. I had two suitcases that I couldn't get up the stairs out of the subway and somebody helped me. Um, but somebody would have still helped me. Regardless, I don't think that 9-11 made people nicer necessarily. I think it made us afraid and we clung to each other in whatever way we could. Um, But there's been a lot of this insidious, uh, I don't like that, looking back and and comparing it to now and saying, oh, we were so together then. I don't know. I think that might have been the beginning of the division. I mean, if like, here's my point. If Twitter had existed right after 9-11, it would have been the same fucking shit that it is now. You know, people fighting and yelling about all this. So, I, I don't know. When the 9-11 memorial uh, opened, there was an article I read. It was written by a family member of a victim. So this was 10 years after 9-11 is when it opened, 2011. And I wish I could remember. I tried to find it. I can't find it. I have no search terms that would bring it to me. Um <laughs> 9-11 memorial article. Like, that doesn't give you what you wanted. Um, but it was it was a really raw, really painful and searing take on, on the experience of the 9-11 museum and memorial from the perspective of a family member who had someone die. Um, and he described what it was like experiencing the museum, you know, and understanding at the end of it that it wasn't really meant for him. Um, it was meant for the public. It was meant for future generations to kind of help them at least have a basic understanding of what happened that day. And what he wrote, um, helped me understand that 
there is a need for public grief. There is a there are places necessary to where we can come and share in that. I mean, um, there 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 needs to be a way for us to tell these stories, um, and process them. And even though the nine eleven museum may not adequately adequately give the whole picture, it's a start. And I remember, um, I remember like in college, like not you know up until that point, I was really truly not able to understand and grasp the gravity of like the Holocaust until I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And that was where I really got it, the the gravity of it. And I just remember, you know, they made it a visceral experience. They had a pile of shoes, glasses. They had so much photographs. They had uh, reconstructed like the barracks where people were staying. I mean, they had so much and they did things to evoke empathy from you and to make you understand what happened. If you were open to it. I mean, there were definitely people in that museum that were not getting it. <laughs> they were running through. Um, but yeah, you know, so I, I know why these museums exist. But the family members, first of all, they're not a monolith. Um, that's another thing that annoyed me after 9-11. It was just like, okay... Not every single family of a 9-11 victim feels the same way. And I think they got lumped together and were seen as anti-Muslim. There was all that drama about like a, a mosque going up near ground zero. The reason I bring this up is because I'm thinking about like that collective grief and the public grieving that we do together over a shared loss. And even when a celebrity dies, I mean, that's an impact. It's a loss in our culture. And I've come to really embrace and accept the RIPs are okay. It's all fine. People can express their feelings however they want. The bottom line is when I was judging other people's way of grieving, whether it be celebrity or, you know, maybe even a member of the comedy community, there's always somebody who's acting like they were best friends with the person. And, you you know, they didn't even like that person. They're not friends, and this person's trying to make it about them. You know, they, they, I think that's what annoys me too is when people try to make the death of someone about them. I'm very sensitive to that. And you know what? All of this is because I feel like I can't express my grief for one reason, that I'm not entitled to my feelings. And I'm overcome with anxiety of it. Am I doing it the wrong way? Am I being offensive? Am I being disrespectful to the person that died and their family? Because of all this, all of this that I have just said to you is why I haven't really talked that much specifically about Alicia publicly um, and how it affected me because that felt selfish to say. Um, And one of the very few times I did, I immediately regretted it. I went on Twitter, it was, um, I don't know, in the past 10 years, but at least like five years ago, probably. And um, they were, the middle school that Alicia attended in our hometown in Richmond, the middle school she went to was renamed, getting renamed. And the friends and family of Alicia decided they wanted to get a petition going to see if they would name the school after Alicia. And... uh, they were spreading it around and I thought, oh, I would love to help add names to this. And I have a platform. This is something I can do to help them. This is something that it's a very easy equation. Like they're asking for help and I can do that. I have 
probably the largest platform at the time of anyone that knew her. Uh, maybe there could be uh, some others. But one of the only people who had a big Twitter following that could get the word out about this. And I thought it was such a good idea. And so I tweeted about it. And people were like, absolutely, I'll sign it. Oh, my God. Um, but then Michael Ian Black, a comedian I like, love, retweeted it. And he had way more followers than me. And so then it kind of gets into another another universe of people seeing it. And there's, you know, maybe a little too much riffraff is seeing it at this point. And, of course, then the trolls come. And then the trolls come. Yeah, there were trolls on this tweet about my friend who died on 9-11. People were saying shit. Only a few, but one guy I'll never forget. He goes, this stupid bitch. I mean, he like literally called her a bitch. And was like, she's a dumb sorority bitch. She's not a hero. I mean, I was so fucking mad. I was nuclear mad. And I was so, I immediately deleted the tweets. I didn't want somehow, because you can't delete other people's tweets. I didn't want her family to somehow see this. I thought, God, I, 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 this is the opposite effect I wanted. You know, this, this, this piece of shit goes and looks her up and looks at her obituary because there's not much about her online because this is pre again like pre Facebook and all that and not your whole life isn't online and he finds information about her and it that in, in it it says she was in a sorority at William and Mary and um and that's what he went for and it's just it's heartbreaking to think about it because of course there wasn't that much in her obituary because she was so young. She was 23 years old. You know, I was in a sorority, but if I died now, that, that wouldn't make the list of things that I did in my life. Okay. And, but she did so much. He was wrong. She lived so much life. She had accomplished so much. But she didn't have enough time to get other stuff on that resume. And I, I'm not trying to fixate on it like the guy did. But it's just sad that, that that's what was pointed out. Because they're just, I don't know, it just made me think about how young she was. And there was so much more for her to do. And it was taken away from her. Um, and there was a story that my mom told me that Alicia's mom told her. So this is like second, third hand. And I, I don't, I don't feel fully comfortable sharing it only because I don't know how accurate my version is now all these 20 years later. And I heard it from my mom, <laughs> but I just remember. And so I'll just give you the broad strokes with the caveat of like, this is clearly a story I have turned into a message for myself. And so I, if it isn't accurate, um, I would uh, immediately acknowledge that. She had called her mom sometime leading up in the in the months maybe before 9-11 or the year. I mean, Alicia was only in New York for like a year, I think, um, before she died. And she had said to her mom, she was frustrated with her situation. She wanted to pursue her art. She liked art. She wanted to do that. And 
she was dissatisfied for in this moment. Um, I don't know if that was her overriding feeling in life, but that was just this one moment being described to me. And Alicia's mom said, well, you're not an artist. You're an accountant. <laughs> it sounds pretty harsh. Um, but I think the mom, my, I think her mom was trying to say, you know, like, you have something that is valid. You are doing something valid. You have a career you can be proud of. And, you know, if you can't do the things you want to do right now, you know, at least, you know, this is what, again, I'm adding details and I'm reading into things that I don't know the full story of. Um, I've lost touch with Alicia's family. So like, I don't know this full story. Um, and, but what I took from it was, is that I remember hearing that story from my mom and being so floored by it. And because when I moved to New York, my job was financial research analyst at a securities fraud law firm. And sure as fuck, that was not what I wanted to be doing. But it was the job I had to get me into New York and to get me working and stable so that I could pursue comedy. I had to support myself financially. I did not have any other money or way of doing it. This was an opportunity for a job that I got through a former boss and I, I had to do it, you know, um, I had to do what I had to do. It was that kind of feeling, but also the story inspired me to never give up and don't play it safe. Go after my dreams and never have someone go, but Sarah, you're not a comedian. You're a financial research analyst to never make my identity that thing I didn't want to be. That life is so short and so fragile that I'm not going to waste it. Um, waste my chance and my goals here. I moved to New York with a purpose and I'm going to do it for Alicia. I'm going to fight for it and I'm not going to play it safe. I'm going to go for it. And I wanted to give up so many times and I was so afraid to try comedy and every step of the way was so overwhelming and scary um but she in my head became this voice of like don't give up and you know it was hard because I was good at the job that I did in that law firm I kept getting promoted and making more money and even when I was close to leaving my boss offered to pay for me to go to business school you know like that's a huge offer uh, but it wasn't who I was and I had so much more to see and to try and to do and I did it. I did it, Alicia. I did it. I, I became an artist. <laughs> I'm sorry. I even feel conflicted getting this emotional. I don't know why I won't let myself feel those things. Or express them to you, some random listener. And again, it's like I barely, I feel like I barely knew, you know, when someone dies. If I wasn't super close to them, I feel, oh, I didn't know them at all. But I knew her the way I knew her. Which was fleeting when you compare now to the decades of knowing someone 
and being close to someone. But anyway, this is a fucking mess of an episode. Jesus. And I don't even know if I made a point. There was no point other than I think I just needed to talk about all that. Um, about all the stuff that's been rolling around in here. I hope it's okay that I did that. I'm going to just say, you know what? It is okay. And I'm not going to worry about it. I need to practice that. <laughs> um, I'll just say one last thing about 9-11 is that uh, it, I also, you know, thought about that I didn't do comedy until after 9-11. And so th- there was an article in Vulture about a bunch of different comedians got interviewed about how 9-11 affected their comedy. And it was a whole spectrum of experiences. It wasn't just one side versus the other. Like things very much are framed these days. It was all kinds of thoughts and feelings about about it. And uh, all I remember is um, I remember thinking should I not go to New York? Should I not try to be a comedian? Like, do we need to roll our sleeves up? Am I like Rosie the Riveter now? Are we all going to have to go to the munitions factory and help? Like, I, I was like, I guess I'm going to have to do that. Nobody's going to want me to be a comedian now. And, you know, within days, I remember vividly watching the first episode of The Daily Show back. And I remember the first issue of The Onion I loved The Onion back then. I mean, I still do, but, like, I was really into The Onion. And I remember their headlines being really sharp and really funny. Um, John Stewart being so funny. And this enormous relief that I felt to laugh and that it was okay to make people laugh. And uh, that really not to put too much importance on comedy but just that it serves a function and it will always have a function. Um, even when we're living in the tunnels, you know, um, when the air is too, too toxic to breathe and we have to all go underground, comedy will still exist down there too, you know? So don't forget that when you're putting together your survival group, you're going to want me. Not only can I, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but not only can I uh, do comedy, but I can, I can make miniatures, and I can grow food. I think that last one is probably going to be the what seals the deal. Um. Okay. <laughs> Fuck. I gotta get out of here. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I love you so much. <laughs>